The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Mark 14, verses 32 through 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, George Orr. I do want to say thank you to our team. Um, first, I want to say a thank you. That some of you all may know her, but Erin McCabe, who's hiding out back there, makes this so beautiful and easy and just inviting. And I just want to thank her uh, for so much of the work. She's not even listening. Um, so much of the work that she does, and she and Jordan, and coming early and setting us up, and our team, JD and Jacob, it just is uh, to be able to worship outdoors and make it so uh, beautiful and so seamless, especially the year we've been through and those kind of things. Well, um, I remember when I was uh, younger and I first received my license to drive, and uh, my, I was at, um, on my street, uh, and I had my hand-me-down, fun, you know, Jeep Grand Cherokee, you know, Jeep Cherokee with boxy ones. Remember the old boxy ones? It looked like just like a lunchbox. Um, it was awesome. Indestructible car. And my dad was like, you, you can have this one. It'd be great, you know. And so I, I get in it, and I remember, uh, this was sometime, I don't know, I think, I think it was, I remember it was a summertime, because I remember the sun being out. And uh, I remember it very vividly. Uh, and <clears throat> I was, went down the street and decided, oh, well, I need to go back. So I, instead of turning around, like doing the, you know, turn around, going forward, I just put it in reverse and just floored it backwards down the street and think it's normal. And all of a sudden, then my, my dad, which I did not know was there, uh, waves me down and says, if I ever see you do that again, and I was just mortified. I was like, what, what? You know, you kind of like that. And then you kind of roll your eyes and you're like, whatever, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, those kind of moments, I, 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 I recall so many of those moments where um, <laughs> that I did something. And now on this side of it, I go, what in the world was I thinking? Like, why would I reverse, like going 40 down backwards down the street not even seeing where I was going. There's so many of those moments. Now, don't we all have that? Either as just as an adult or a parent where we rolled our eyes over and over at things. And then now on this side of it, growing up looking at it, or we do it, or we see it done, and we're like, what are they thinking? I'm so glad I learned that. Seinfeld has a hilarious, Jerry Seinfeld talks about the difference between being a, a child and being a, an adult. He says, why is it with... With uh, kids, everything's, wait up, hold up, everything's up. Wait up, hold up. Why is it with, with adults, everything's down? Sit down, put that down. Sit down, hold out. You know, I mean, it's like everything's down, like put it down. 
is because on this side of things, we see something different. We see the picture different. And you may wonder why in the world, okay, Mark, last week was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection. Why are we going in reverse in the book of Mark? It's interesting. The gospel writers over and over, particularly in the gospel of John, will put little phrases after an event with the disciples and say, and it'll say things like, they didn't understand it until after the resurrection. Or they didn't get it until he was risen. And so one of the things that I think is really important, if you think about reading Mark's gospel, if it was the first time you've ever read Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel is the first one ever written. In the New Testament, it's written, uh, their position, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but Mark was written in the 50s, 60s AD. It was the first one ever written. And it was written to a group of suffering Christians. And imagine if you'd kind of heard of these events, but you were reading this and you got to the end and then you see the resurrection and you can pour back over the rest of the book and go, oh yes. Because in light of the resurrection, all the other things fit in context. They, they illuminate even more. Just like being on this side, so many of those things we didn't get, now we get. That's what's happening in this book. And I love this passage in particular. Because this passage of any highlights for me one of the, the deepest, most profound parts of Christianity that's different than any other. Most heroes and leaders, uh, even of modern day culture, we see uh, in, you know, in, in our time, and even ancient culture of Roman and Greek, come with it maybe a leader in the, one of their most crucial moments being stoic or kind of ready to go or, or even fighting back in some sense. But this is a moment where you see one of the greatest pictures of a leader doing something unheard of. There's no stoicism here. Jesus would face his deepest, darkest places of agony. And because we've been to the resurrection, we can look back and see what was he really dealing with in that garden? Because we've seen the cross already in Good Friday, we can look back and go, what was this anguish? What is, how can he say he's sorrowful even to the point of death? We can look back and see what he's really dealing with to the depths to even highlight even more so the resurrection for us. So we're gonna look at two things from this passage. We're gonna look at first how, what he endured for us and second, we're gonna look at what he secured for us. So what he endured for us and what he secured for us. <clears throat> you know, um, the Garden of Gethsemane was actually an olive orchard. Um, it was an olive orchard that was possibly a private estate. Uh, and the disciples had passed through it a number of times. In fact, the word Gethsemane means olive press. So it was probably a manufacturing place. And when it mentions uh, the names of Peter, James, and John, the gospels do this. And we've even seen this in Mark's gospel itself. It, it always highlights a very crucial point in Jesus's ministry. It's a very, it's, it's a, it's a pinnacle moment for him, be it the transfiguration, be it some other moments throughout that gospel. Here it is, and it is Jesus, one of the most honest, vulnerable, agonizing places you could ever see him. He says in verse 33, 33 
He took Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. In other words, in the, even in the Greek, it talks about it being terrified, his soul. He says in 34, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. What in the world? That Jesus, and, and particularly, maybe we haven't even thought of Jesus in this light before. What is it like for Jesus' soul his actual in, internal being to feel so sad that it was even to the point of death and to express that to his disciples. This is, again, not something you typically see of a leader. You think of if he's looking towards the cross or this big moment, <clears throat> he's not gonna reveal this to those that are following him. But no, he, he goes to the point of saying sorrowful even point of death. You know, there's a... Um, in a New York Times Magazine, there was an article that was called, We Can't Comprehend This Much Sorrow. And it was a, a person who was really reviewing kind of the last year or so, just as we all have. But what was interesting about it was uh, the, the author's recounting of things that they lost, things they missed. And, and essentially day one, and I don't know if you remember day one of being mandatory at home and the pandemic like beginning. It's kind of hard to remember that. It's been a while. But that very day when we all kind of had to take in for a moment what we lost. And this is what this person was saying is, this is, he was writing, he said, this would be the last day maybe he eats at his favorite restaurant or sees a concert or actually receives a hug. And in that moment, taking in all of those losses, think about what Jesus is, he's taking in at this moment, at one point, not in a year, but at one moment, he's allowing his soul to take in every bit of those losses he's, he's going to incur. All of the deepest relationships, even the ones he brought with him to say, I'm even sorrowful to the point of death, they would even fall asleep even after hearing that. Can you imagine even expressing a moment of your pain to someone and they fall asleep and are unwilling to even hear you? Jesus not only takes on that pain of not being heard, but the deepest losses all at once are incurring in his heart. It was a sorrow that gripped him so deeply that, that even in Isaiah in the Old Testament, it describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Like his very title was a man of sorrows. That, that should radically transform the way we see Jesus. It not, it, and it isn't grief of just ho-hum, uh, of an attitude. It's grief of him taking on the griefs and losses that we have incurred. It's Jesus actually experiencing the depth of that. Because he sees the cross and the cross is such a crisis to him because the sin, the pain, the agony, the things that we feel, the griefs we suffer, the sorrow we incur, he is not only feeling them, he's identifying his whole self with those even to the point of death. And he takes Peter, James, and John to say, in some sense to have solace, three of the closest disciples to him. And he, in his moment, his crucial hour, he's alone. And there is nothing more feeling like hell itself 
than experiencing your grief, your sorrow, absolutely alone. Isn't that one of the most difficult places is when you feel something so profound and you're with maybe even a crowd of people like this and you still, still feel that alone. That's what Jesus is feeling. Jesus is enduring grief on a level that many of us think we've felt but haven't even yet. Jesus is enduring sorrow and isolation and loneliness, even in a way that some of us think we felt isolated, but he's taking it all on. It's amazing, if you read loneliness, look, we've, it's an easy softball to talk about how lonely many of us have been. You know, even so many people walking up, it's like, do we fist bump, elbow? You know, like we're still trying to figure out how do we actually interact with each other? But Jesus is doing something so interesting because one of the things that if you study even our our U.S. history in the last, it'll take five years, even before the pandemic, one of the things that was described about the epidemic of our nation, our people, us as Westerners, has not been the fact that we struggle with obesity or cancer or those things. The number one epidemic that has been considered in our Western world, and even I would say broadly, maybe even in the global uh, sense, is loneliness. Even the Surgeon General himself at one point said that is our epidemic in our country. That is our deepest issue. In fact, if you, if you do a research study of loneliness, you can actually see that loneliness actually transforms cells. They did a study on it at the University of Chicago where they studied people's DNA and white blood count who were in deep uh, isolation. And they actually found that there was a transformation of their cellular DNA. What, what Jesus is encountering here is to go all the way to our grief, all the way to our loneliness. The, the, the struggle that the early church, so, so a lot of times we talk about, is Jesus really God? That, that's kind of a modern day struggle of who Jesus is, kind of the question surrounding him. Do you know the original question for the early church wasn't, is he, is he God, was, is he man? The early church heresies and difficulties struggle with is Jesus really can he really identify with us is he really man Jesus is going all the way here to say not only is he feeling a feeling he's allowing even ourselves in his own body his own cells his own DNA his own makeup to experience this loneliness and isolation in a way that many of us have felt and none of us have even gotten to the bottom of it. He's feeling it even with those around him that are the closest. One of my favorite books that talks about our emotions in the Lord is called Cry of the Soul. I'd really encourage you to read this. I've mentioned it a couple times before. Uh, it's it's uh, written by uh, Dan Allender and Trimper Longman, who are uh, a theologian and a psychologist. Um, and they write about the Psalms and the emotion of the Psalms connecting. One of the things they say is intense loneliness. Loneliness 
is the complete withdrawal of intimacy is one of the ways they can connect that. In other words, that Jesus is experiencing here one of the greatest forms of withdrawal ever. He's not just experiencing Peter, James, and John falling asleep at his crucial moment when he goes back to them not once but three times to say, would you be with me? Would you watch and pray? He's now experiencing even deeper of knowing that at some point soon, his heavenly father is going to turn his face from him. The deepest, most profound relationship that he has with God himself. He is experiencing the feeling and brushing up against what he's about to experience at the cross, the separation from God himself, where he never experienced it. You know how we all, many times, we, and you may even be here this, this morning and feel this kind of, okay, Easter was great, and maybe you're like, this, it's, it can be for us, some of us, <laughs> a uh, New Year's Eve spirituality, you know? We come to an Easter service, and then we feel like, man, I'm gonna, you know, Easter's just charged me up. I'm gonna have a relationship. But then, Maybe you feel dry. Maybe some of you have even come this morning like, man, I, I wasn't even there. I don't even know if I wanted to come this morning. I don't know how I feel about God. I, you know, you may be all over the place. But imagine never feeling that. Never struggling with feeling like a relationship with God is difficult. A relationship with God is weird. A relationship with God is feels like you're speaking into the air. Jesus never experienced that and yet is now putting himself in the position to feel that and even asking so honestly in a way that we would never think he would ask when he prayed to the Lord himself and he said in verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He's talking to God saying, God, would you pass this from me? Would you possibly remove this? Jesus is being tempted with something that we all are when we are at our deepest point of loneliness, being disloyal to God. Dare we say, being on the, just even the edge of blasphemy, that Jesus is experiencing the greatest temptation of us to be unfaithful and disloyal to God himself. And that's what our loneliness does. Instead of turning to anything that many of us, when we feel lonely, turning to something to numb that or to, to avoid feeling lonely or, or any of those things that would tell us, we don't need to experience this, let's put it off. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He takes on every moment. He endures every part of the grief, sorrow, loneliness, and pain, and even the unfaithfulness that we all have to brush against it in order so that he might secure our relationship to God. That's what's amazing about this. He says this weird thing here that many of us may read and go, what's he talking about? In verse 36, he said, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He asked for this to be removed. And he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. The cup that he's talking about is a cup that in the Old Testament is represented often as a cup of destiny. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, you can read it a number of ways. Sometimes in the Psalms, it, it reads of a cup of blessing that you drink, you know, taking up a cup to say, this is a cup of my life. And then there are other places in the prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and this one particularly from Jeremiah, that considers this a cup of wrath, a cup of anger being poured out. 
Jeremiah, it's considered the cup that spoke the full weight of God's judgment to be poured out of shame. And Jesus is feeling that. He's, and he's saying, God, is there any other way that I don't have to drink this cup? I mean, could I, could I rescue these people? Could I do something different in, than drinking the full weight of your anger and wrath? That's, that's what most of us are afraid of. See, most of us are afraid that if we really come to church, if we really confess, that we really don't know if God really loves us. I'd say all of us struggle with that. All of us struggle with the, the question of, does he really love us? Does he really care for us? Jesus is saying, is there any other way I can save them? And he says, no, because the only way for us to be secured from the wrath and anger that we think God is constantly doing this and tapping his foot and treating us as if we have just constantly messed up and are in shame is if he drinks that judgment for us. If he drinks the cup of judgment because his commitment was to secure that will of his father for us. See, if Jesus doesn't do it, then who will? Us. In fact, this comes up earlier in another passage where some disciples say to Jesus, hey, uh, can I sit at your right hand or left? Can I be with you? These are the same disciples that went with them. That, that Peter, James, and John, Peter himself, he said, I'll never fall away from you. I'll always be with you. James and John said, hey, can, you know when you bring this, this awesome kingdom you're talking about in, can I like have the greatest positions of power? Can I be in your cabinet? And you know what he asked them? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're a little bit like, sure, because they don't really understand again. <laughs> what is this? Okay, sure, cup, yeah. Can drink the cup. He says, mm, I don't think you understand what cup I'm talking about. The only way that you can sit at my right hand and left, the only way you can be in the kingdom is if I drink it to the dregs. If I take that cup in myself, if I drink that on myself. Because Jesus himself is the only one that can have that commitment, that ultimate commitment to his father. Because what would happen? Peter, James, and John, they all would fall away. We read about and Peter, but really what Jesus says to all the disciples, you will all fall away. But what secures us isn't our will. It isn't us being so tough and having a grip. It's that God has his grip on us because he's willing to pour every ounce of his wrath into his own son. And Jesus does it willingly. That's incredible to me. That Jesus would do that willingly. And you know why? Because he knows he trusts his father. It begins here in verse 36. It says in his prayer, he says, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus is willing to commit to his father's will because he commits to his father regardless. It, it, when he says, Abba, Father, that was a highly unusual thing to actually say to God. It was for people to read that, especially as a Jewish person, it would have been very uncomfortable because it's a highly intimate thing to say to, to the Lord of heaven and earth. It's Aramaic. Abba is Aramaic for father. So essentially he's saying, father, father. He's saying, daddy, my father. But for someone reading this to call God that, it would be like, wait, God is too high. Notice in the Lord's prayer, 
how, God, how Jesus teaches his, his disciples to pray. He says what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He doesn't just start with hallowed be thy name. He starts with our Father. And that would take the disciples off, off track because he's talking about, he's talking, Jesus is talking to somebody with deep intimacy about his, who he is and his relationship with them. As a child, Jesus is talking. And most of us, I would say, especially as an adult going full circle, even when I began with, most of us now that we're, you know, adults, we're adulting if we aren't adults, right? We would say to ourselves, we feel, oh yeah, we get embarrassed when we feel those child needs. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. In order to be in relationship with Jesus is expressing his deepest, most vulnerable neediness to his heavenly father. And we need to learn to, what, what it means to be vulnerable and needy as children, that it's safe. See, that's what's funny about little kids, right? Little kids don't, they feel safe asking questions because they just ask them. And they'll ask them over and over, the same one over and over and over. Hey, will you get this? Will you get this? Will you do this? Will you turn this on? Will you, will you buy this? Well, can I have this? You know, I mean, it's like, and there's no real filter for it. It's just, it's, oh, pay no attention. We're still here. We'll get those. But that, it really is it. I remember when I was at, um, when I was, um, working at Vanderbilt uh, with students and my now older son um, who's 11 was, hey, if you want, grab some music sheets on your way out. Um, who's now 11. He was really young at the time. He came in my office and we, I had him up at my office for the day and, and he got a couple, I had a couple of, whoa, that's just not staying up. He had a, uh, I had a cup of coffee and he had a cup of water. And uh, he was like, Daddy, what do you do up here? And I go, well, I meet with people. And he goes, and he was really young, so he said it this way. He goes, okay, I, I pretend to be your student. I said, okay. So he sat in one chair and I sat in the other. And I said, so how are you? And he goes, bad. I said, oh, bad. Why bad? He said, well, I do bad things. Now I drink my coffee. And he grabbed his cup and he just sipped it and looked at me. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, wow, that must be what, you know, he thinks all, every meeting is, you know, I do bad things. Okay, now I'm going to drink my coffee, you know. But just the, the unbridled, the unfiltered, I loved it because what he's doing, he felt so safe just to, even, even if he was pretending. Jesus is coming to God himself with the most crucial thing before him, taking up the cross and dying, suffering for us. And he's looking at him with the most vulnerable heart and saying, Abba, Father. He's teaching us, he's securing for us, not just that he is God's son, but he's securing that we would be sons and daughters. By Jesus putting himself in this position, of being just vulnerable, open, not just enduring. He's securing our relationship with God the Father that is broken, that doesn't feel safe to say bad because I do bad things. Jesus is securing the safety that we have longed for, that we miss. 
that we didn't have before what he did. And that's how we look at the resurrection and the cross back to this event to say he had to experience feeling the bad things that we all feel and we all have done and go back to sipping our coffee so that he would secure us in him. These are the disciples that would leave him. I want you to think about the way that Jesus' commitment is incredible. The, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible says it this way, that says, but there was something else, something even more horrible to Jesus, that when people ran away from God, they lost God. And Jesus knew that he was going to have to lose God, his father, for a time in order to bring us back. Look, this is what this table is. Think about this for a moment. Jesus praying in this garden and what he's doing is securing something that was lost long ago in a garden long before. In the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve would believe that they can only be close to God if they did their own thing. And they were separated from him. And yet Jesus in this garden would take on every bit of the separation that we have felt, every way that we felt insecure, and even the reality of it that he would take up in order that we might be brought back in. That he would secure it for us. He endured because he knows that our flesh is weak. One of the amazing things that Jesus says and why he tells the disciples to watch and pray is because he knows that their flesh is weak. That their spirit is willing, they would love, but their flesh is weak. But whose flesh was made weak so ours is strong? That's why we take his body. His body is his flesh given for us because our flesh is weak so that we might be made strong. The separation that he had, we get to taste. You get to drink grace. In a moment, you get to taste a very small morsel and a very small taste of the cup of grace because God, Jesus himself, drank the cup of wrath. You're not drinking a cup of wrath. You're drinking a cup of grace. Praise be to God for his mercies, his love, because he endured and secured that reality for us.